2: And I love listening to Vish Khanna's Creative Control because whether he's talking to a favorite musician or actor of mine, or someone I've never heard of, it's as if he's introducing me to a new friend. And the way things are going, couldn't you use a new friend? Listen now.
1: To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today.
2: Nestorov is a well-respected comedy historian and writer who calls Hollywood, California, home. Originally from Slocan, British Columbia, Nestorov has appeared on networks like CNN and Vice as an expert who can discuss comedy and show business. He was last on this show to discuss his probing 2017 television series Funny How, and also his remarkably comprehensive book The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, which was published in 2015 and remains a towering achievement. In 2021, Simon & Schuster published another astonishing overview by Nesteroff. It's called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans in Comedy. And Cliff returns to this show to discuss why he took this project on, his trepidation about being a white man writing a reflection on indigenous arts and why it essentially became and oral history, the reception the book has received from indigenous comedians and audiences, Charlie Hill's life and comedy breakthrough as a Native American stand-up, racist stereotypes and very, very funny indigenous people, his next book, Other Future Plans, and more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. And Massey Hall's concert film series, live at MasseyHall.com, where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests, like the new Pornographers. Plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 618th episode of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Cliff Nesteroff, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Cliff. How's it going? Good, Vish. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to talk to you again. It's been uh, been a long time. Congratulations on another wonderful book, if I might say. Thank you. It's it's beautiful. Now, we'll talk about it in a bit, but first of all, uh, where in the world are you?
0: I am in uh, Hollywood, California. Hollywood, USA.
2: Hollywood, USA. Are you in the same place, likely? Uh, I don't remember how long ago we talked. It's been a few years, but have you moved much since uh, the last time we chatted? Do you know? Uh, Same apartment,
0: different building, but I am uh, same zip code, maybe just a few few blocks east of where I was before, but still in historic Hollywood, USA, a beautiful uh, national historic district, all 1920s architecture, all 1920s uh, silent movie scandals living ghostly around me and uh yeah sunshine and orange groves man
2: <laughs> far cry from what life is like here in edmonton alberta i must oh, i must say oh, yeah
0: oh my god were you sent there or I, you volu- <laughs> voluntarily i
2: was yeah it's a conscription no uh there uh we uh my wife is from her family's from here and then we left ontario in january of 2020 uh for work we got better jobs and we thought you know it'd be closer to my wife Michelle's family and then uh, then the pandemic happened
0: Wait a second you you moved to Edmonton voluntarily in January
2: y- Yeah yeah that's there's a little lilt in your tone that I don't don't like <laughs> I'm not happy about it but yeah yeah we did do that we did those things and then like yeah within 2 weeks to your point it was like minus 40 degrees Celsius for like 2 weeks record breaking cold um, Is it
0: le- is it legal to to move to edmonton in january like is it like <laughs> is the health canada doesn't like step in and say this is a bad idea
2: there were some people who questioned the, the the decision yes my mechanic who i tried to get i tried you know i had my 2005 toyota matrix shipped out here and mm-hmm. uh, before which was dumb because uh, they have very very prohibitive uh, uh, out of province inspections that occur they told me when i got here with the car the mechanics like dude seriously Anything more than two years, you're failing. I'm like, what? Come on. I had this all safetyed in Ontario. And the Ontario, wow. Ontario mechanic was, I said, do you, do you get much of this? People you know, going to Alberta from here and getting their car safetyed? And he went, never that way. It's always the other way. People come here from Alberta. So that was a bad omen in a sense. too. Now,
0: now, now the verb safetyed sounds <laughs> like another uh, Canadianism. What is, what is here in California, you get your car smogged. That's a verb.
2: Smogged. Yeah, like an emissions test kind of thing?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the
2: verb is smogged. You're good to go if you've been smogged. Right. We uh, we did so have, you, safe,
0: safety <laughs> sounds like the Canadian uh, equivalent in some way.
2: Now just hold on a second for those who don't know you're Canadian. Don't try to brush this off your Canadianism. You've never heard of be, a car being safety? That's when so basically uh, if you if you have a transaction and you sell your car to someone Ideally, they would get it safetied first by a mechanic. A mechanic goes through the whole car and determines what is safe and what isn't. And if things are repairable uh, for safety, you repair them before you sell it or give it Mm -hmm. to someone else. So that's what a safety is generally. So I wanted to make sure it was safetied because I knew there was an outer province inspection looming. So, yeah, I had it safetied. And they said, yeah, it needs a bit of work. And I got that work done. Then I put it on a truck. Cost me like three thousand dollars. Do all that stuff, and then it got here, and immediately, you know, I took it to get the out of province inspection. They're like, "No way, not gonna happen." I was like, "Really?" So I got screwed by Alberta right away. That's all I'm saying. Wow. Then, then we got a, my family and I got a minivan, like a 2020 minivan, uh, which I was excited about, and I drove it from the dealership to where we were staying at my in laws' house. Got a speeding ticket, <laughs> very first trip, and they have camera like camera radar here so i didn't yeah. know i got the speeding ticket until three weeks later I'm like this is the first trip so i just and then there was a pandemic there is a pandemic i mean depending on when people listen to this if it's five years from now there was a pandemic but there is a pandemic now and so everything has gone to hell like we moved and the whole world ended basically so uh, that's this seems like a nice segue how is your year and a bit of pandemic life been cliff has it been okay in in hollywood
0: I mean, it's been okay for me. I don't watch or follow the news anymore. Once I got the bad news about the pandemic, and once I personally was safetied for, you know, any <laughs> pandemic <laughs>
2: navigation,
0: had a mask. <laughs> had went, down the, went
2: down to the me- mechanic and got safetied for the pandemic? Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, they said you got, the mechanic told me, yeah, you got to wear a mask.
0: you got to sanitize. <laughs> right. you got to stay home as much as possible. And uh, so I did that. But then if you go to like Bakersfield, they don't have the same safety restrictions. They got different. It's like Ontario and Alberta. You can yeah. not wear a mask and die and it's okay there. But uh, my my yeah. pandemic has been all right. You know, I uh, work from home to begin with. I sit at home and I read and write no matter what. It has remained sunny in California. But uh, during the pandemic's uh, first summer, as you'll recall, there are wildfires up and down oh, the yeah. West Coast. yeah. And we had to, like, stay inside because you literally couldn't breathe the air. Like, if you went outside and tried to inhale, it was, like, physically painful and yeah. you couldn't really do it. So the fact that there was a pandemic and wildfires that made you have to stay inside made it real bad, real bad. Yeah. But now that that has cleared up, uh, living in a sunshiny climate with palm trees and all that really does make uh, the pandemic much more manageable for me. I don't know how you would do it in uh in canada so even though people think i'm crazy to live in america instead of canada um, when you take into account everything that's been going on for my mental health uh, sunshine really does wonders and uh yeah so holly hollywood remains the place for me and uh, universal uh, vaccinations are occurring the week that we're recording this everybody in california now qualifies for a vaccination so
2: oh well that's good for you do you have one scheduled for yourself or have you had one yet scheduled it uh today oh good for you that's great yeah we're way behind here uh i, I don't know that we'll have them before my family and i, I don't think well my parents sorry my wife and i i should say i don't think we'll have ours before july maybe that's what they told us but then like former prime minister stephen harper uh he tweets something like uh, i walked into the shoppers drug mart and i got vaccinated and i don't know if that's true i don't generally think the things he said or says are true but uh if that's the truth then maybe I will wander into a Shoppers Drug Mart and see about uh, getting vaccinated. Yeah. Why know.
0: why would he why would he lie now that he is retired though? Like I, his I, his profession his job was to be a liar for years yeah. but now he's re- retired so what benefit about lying about uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, would there be? Well, the he, sp- I
2: will, I will argue that he was ushered into a forced retirement based on an election result. Uh, but politicians, as you know, they never really go away. They kind of, they can come back too. You know, they have. He, he,
0: he sort of did go away. Or maybe it's because I live in California, I never hear about him. But I feel like. Justin Trudeau so upstaged yeah. Stephen Harper that he's very seldom mentioned. Did he did he is he really still actively uh no, you're, trying to no, you're on ruin to, things?
2: No, you're on to something. He's generally been pretty quiet for he pops up every once in a while to criticize things, but generally pretty quiet. Yeah, that's fair. But he did pop up for this. And to be honest, uh, in the grand scheme of things, given the way uh, most for some reason, conservative leading politicians and their followers tend to go he made a point of saying he got vaccinated you know wasn't anti-masking wasn't hoaxing so that's yeah. good that might be yeah. good yeah
0: i'm no, i'm no fan of uh stephen harper i'm no fan of uh justin trudeau yeah but the juxtaposition of the way a right-wing politician operates here and the way a right-wing politician operates there is drastically uh, different yes. there's very few right-wing politicians here who would make a spectacle of uh getting free health care, socialized medicine and a vaccination shot, and then tweet it to the world without some sort of coded racist message. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very yeah. very different very different uh, world. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist now. I'm a bright side looking guy. You yeah. know yeah. America is horrific and chaotic. I'm getting vaccinated before you are somehow, despite all of that. Stephen Harper, is tweeting out a photo showing the uh, virtues of socialized medicine despite being a right-wing uh, yeah. uh, villain you know yeah. so uh, I try and not be too dogmatic and too uh, hostile. I gotta I gotta acknowledge the differences between the countries when when something's positive versus uh, negative. but I, I do loathe um, everything that he said and did.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I actually wondered about this. It sounds like you're a little, uh, maybe at a, keeping Canada's uh, political climate at a bit of an arm's distance now that you're ensconced in in Hollywood. But uh, have you been? You have family here in in British Columbia still, I assume. Is that fair? I
0: have uh, a mother and a brother. Yeah, yeah. and my father. My father is uh, is not. He's. He's not all there. He's in a home. He's oh. still there. Oh, I'm sorry um, to hear that. But, uh, uh, yeah, so those three
2: Okay. in Canada. So yeah. I, I, where I was going with that, and I, I'm sorry to hear about your father. Uh, but um, I, Yeah, I lo-
0: cut that part out. I didn't mean to bring it, make it a big downer. Here <laughs> no,
2: no, no. No, no, it's fine. I, I asked the question. My point is I wondered if uh, you are checking in with them, and as a result, are you hearing about how Canada is faring Uh, during this pandemic. uh, Because as you say, it is a little unusual. Uh, Who would have thought, you know, a year ago, let's say, with the president that America had and the leadership that Canada had, that America would be, uh, you know, fast tracking their citizens to vaccines, whereas Canada uh, seems to be lagging behind. Uh, Have you heard this kind of commentary from your family or friends uh, here in Canada at all?
0: I haven't heard it from family and friends. I see tangentially, you know, complaints on Twitter and in the news and Mm -hmm. whatnot. But like I said, I've been trying not to pay attention to the news because I don't like the running tally, the way they treat the pandemic like it's a sporting event, like this is the score. Now, or like same thing when the elections are happening and they're, they're showing the percentages like hour by hour, day by day, breakdown of demographics. I don't need that kind of number crunching. All I have to know is um, what can I do, what can I not do, and that, that, that's it. And because it's been the same for so long, I've just sort of ignored it yeah. because uh, mental health, um, the more you focus on the news, the worse it gets, the more paranoid you get, the more upset you get. And in the old days of just having a newspaper delivered to your front door, you would sit down, you would read the newspaper, there would be some terrible news in there, you get upset, and then you'd get rid of the newspaper. You didn't keep going back to the same newspaper and rereading the same headline yeah. over and over and over all day long and keep scrolling through the newspaper all day long until you went insane. But that's what people do <laughs> with news on the internet and social media. You're just looking at the same notifications of how things are getting worse and worse and worse. And, oh, there's going to be a vaccine. Oh, but now there's a worse virus, you know, and all these types of yeah. things. And it doesn't help you navigate or circumvent anything better as long as you're an informed person you can step away from the news and not be less informed actually sometimes you you're you're going to be uh more ill-informed or more insidiously affected uh your mental health will will be arrears you think you're informed but really um it's creating uh, a mental health crisis so i try and uh, avoid it as much as possible and uh and good luck to everybody. We're going to get out of it soon. But uh, I try not to obsess over it.
2: Fair enough. Yeah, I've been trying to get better at it. It's been a bit hard. I like to stay informed. But to your point, there's a fine line between being informed and uh, driving yourself into anxiety and stress uh, by being informed. So it's a- I,
0: fi- I find that because I've uh, – this might sound pompous. But because I've read and read a lot of history and educated myself as a historian, I can kind of like – Step outside of the present and sort of look at a bigger picture sort of angle and look at historic presidencies and you know during the Trump era I did that when fascism was was percolating to 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 look at the history of fascism and acknowledge that as much suffering and destruction as fascism has imposed on different societies over the course of history at the same time fascism in every circumstance has also collapsed and imploded and ended and something um, beneficial uh, uh, followed later. You know, there's always a reaction against fascism eventually. So I was just sort of looking at those types of things, seeing where and how the car, the clouds part historically. And they always seem to do, always do seem to eventually part, even if people suffer or die along the way, not yeah. to diminish that. But eventually uh, humanity comes out of it. And uh, maybe that sounds like a flaky Uh, perspective on it but when you study history and you see that nothing lasts forever when things are really bad that can give you a little bit of hope
2: absolutely yeah and i feel like this could be in a way a segue into our discussion of your book we had a little real estate problem the unheralded story of native americans in comedy maybe a clumsy segue but i feel like it's it's sort of there i think i think it's (laughs) i think it sort of works
0: I thought you were going to say maybe a clumsy subtitle. I thought that's what you were about to say.
2: (laughs) I try not to insult my guests until at least half an hour has passed. No, 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 not at all. I I think it's a – so as I was saying, uh, this is a really uh, well-written book. I was marveling. I've been rereading it actually, and uh, I read it once, and I'm reading it again. And because some of the structural things – that you got up to, I was just marveling at them. I was, I was telling my wife, "Yeah, he does this amazing thing. Like you're bouncing around history, and you're bouncing between sort of different, uh, let's call them characters or figures in history." But Cliff does this remarkable thing where he kind of seamlessly connects them chapter by chapter. And it's uh, anyway, I want to get into that stuff uh, as well. But it's a really wonderful book. Uh, I Thank guess v- very simply, Cliff, uh, what inspired you? to write this book in the first place. I'm curious.
0: Well, I was asked uh, to write it by Simon & Schuster. I had uh, gotten offers after writing my first book, The Comedians, which was a history of stand-up. I got a number of offers um, to write other books, but almost all of them, for some reason, were about modern contemporary comedy. And I am, by trade, a historian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I couldn't understand why publishers didn't grasp that. They all wanted me to write about Netflix podcasts the modern comedy boom at one point I was asked to uh ghostwrite uh Dan Harmon's memoir oh. and I was like I was like why do you know who I am do you think I'm somebody else like why would I?
2: fair enough yeah uh,
0: yeah so I was turning all of those down and then at one point my agent was like well I got nothing else for you because I had written a bunch of proposals history things and they didn't sell and so Uh, My agent was like, there's a publisher and they will give you a book deal if you write a book about contemporary comedy. So for the book proposal, I wrote things into the proposal that would interest me um, as opposed to bore me. And writing about podcasts or Netflix seemed boring. But I included this one chapter in the proposal. Would have just been a 10-page chapter about the rise of indigenous comedians today because – You know, for generations, there's been very few First Nations comedians or Native American comedians of prominence. And now, because comedy is so popular the past few years with podcasts, Netflix, what have you, there have been at least a 100 indigenous stand-up comedians, improvisers, sketch performers to emerge just in the last five to 10 years. So I thought that was interesting, and I was just going to talk about that for 10 pages. That proposal, this overall proposal about modern comedy, found its way to Simon & Schuster. The editors there contacted me. They said, we read this this proposal you have about contemporary comedy. We think it's shit. We think it's stupid. We think it's boring. (laughs) We think it's dumb. I said, yeah, I, I agree. And they said, however, this one chapter in here about indigenous comedians, that's really interesting to us. If you would like to write an entire book just about that, we'll give you a book deal. So I said, OK, that sounds good. But I also had like trepidation because I'm not native. Yeah, so- you're not an
2: indigenous person. You, you have a very, I thought, thoughtful author's note. Uh, you do have one. Sorry, it's not gone. It's in the book. And uh, I was going to ask you to elaborate upon that. You are not an indigenous person. Uh, I appreciate that you're self-aware about the implications of taking on such a project as a non-Indigenous person. Can you, yeah. for those listening, how did you reconcile that fact and and how did you go forward?
0: I still haven't, I'm still developing ulcers about it right to this moment. You know, mm-hmm. it's a difficult thing to navigate, not just to take on that project. You know, what right do I have to, to write about this? But also then the book is done, then you're promoting it. That's another like minefield. It's like sometimes I'm being interviewed About the book by a white journalist. I'm a white guy. There's no indigenous person in the room. I don't want to be uh, speaking on anybody's behalf. And so when I composed this book, I really was intent on letting the contemporary performers who I spoke to uh, speak for themselves without me interpreting. So when you read the book, you'll see um, the majority of the modern comedians that I talk to. um, I'm not interfering. I'm not really editorializing. I'm not even talking much about their life. They are talking about their life. And in many of the chapters you'll see and hear from performers who contradict each other or who have a different belief system or whatever. And so that is intentional to exemplify the diversity among different indigenous communities throughout the United States, Canada, wherever without me filtering it through the prism of this white author, you know. Yeah. So I was real real careful in doing that and, and very upfront with everybody that I spoke to, you know, letting them know that I'm not uh, indigenous and that it's a dodgy thing. There's such a legacy of racist historians, anthropologists, sociologists who are coming to their own conclusions and 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 really dispensing disinformation, misinformation, stuff filtered through a racist lens. So I was aware of all of that and so all of that gave me trepidation and I was really trying to avoid that and also to get the blessing or endorsement of the people that I was talking with. And I've been gratified by the response so far to the book that it's it's really been embraced by uh, a lot of native journalists and indigenous book reviewers and other comedians and so on and so forth. It's been a uniformly positive response. But there's still skepticism when people don't know that before they've read that author's note or they don't know who the author is and they just see a blurb on the front from Steve Martin. It seems like a weird um, mm. divide. Like, here's a white celebrity. What does he have to do with indigenous culture? Not much, blah, 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 blah. Um, so there's all kinds of like complicated considerations. So when I was researching the book, I had to research a lot more than just comedy. You know, I had to learn a lot about... Uh, the nuances between various Native nations, the history of various dynamics between the Canadian government and First Nations peoples or the U.S. government and Native Americans. You know, there's a lot of heavy history and and sort of nuanced history that had very little to do with comedy that I had to kind of grasp yeah. before I could go any further. So it was without question the most difficult project to get correct that I have ever uh, attempted
2: yeah so within the author's note you mentioned that you did confer with someone in kind of an advisory role I would say it doesn't sound like they co-wrote the book with you in any regard but you is that right did you get some some sort of counsel yeah
0: I worked with a woman named Jessica Elm Uh, Jessica is uh, from John Hopkins University she's Oneida And one of the star characters of the book is a guy named Charlie Hill, Mm -hmm. who was a stand-up comedian who started in the 1970s. He also was Oneida. It is uh, a native nation which is in the Midwest of the United States now. She was – yeah, I I don't really have a descriptor for her, an advisor or a consultant. I guess you could choose any one of those terms. Mm -hmm. But she was somebody that I was on the phone with uh, uh, constantly – Uh, Once I had enough material to show her and we went over it and she flagged anything that she felt that was potentially problematic, there wasn't a lot. I'm happy to say that she was pretty much delighted with my point of view, but there were just general things to consider that she would point out that we would work on uh, together. It was a bit of a laborious uh, process, but also, of course, very necessary.
2: Did anything, uh, any of the feedback surprise you, per se? Like, I get what you're saying. It wasn't like you've done something completely wrong here, but did anything, were you like, oh, I didn't consider that, or was it simply like factual not, corrections?
0: Yeah, not really. It was like th- the things that I would come up with, I don't know, they'd be sort of meaningless, I think, to the listeners. They're mostly about, the contradictions within various indigenous communities where there was no consensus about one thing. So for instance, there's a phrase, I don't know if it gained traction in Canada at
2: all called two spirit. Yeah. Which refers it, it, it to it does. Like, it did. It 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 has. Yeah. It has.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So two spirit is in reference to the LGBTQ community within indigenous communities. And I had used the phrase two-spirit. I thought it was like a real progressive thing on my part to use the phrase two-spirit. And then Jessica told me, well, within many indigenous communities, there's no consensus about that phrase. And some people like it, and a lot of people hate it. So I deferred to that note, and decided not to use it, and just to not use any phrase at all, and just to not focus on sexuality in, in any sense. Because there was a couple comedians in the book who were who were gay, and I thought, oh, I'll use the phrase uh, two-spirit. And she uh, said, don't, because it's huh. something that is popular amongst university students, but there's lots of elders who don't like it, and it's not a homophobic thing. It's just a thing that some people feel is not, I don't know, not not every... Uh, culture subscribes to the term. So, I, you know, things like that that I wouldn't know any better. Being sure. a white, li- yeah. white liberal, I would think, oh, yeah, definitely I'll use it. And, but it's not all, I mean, this should go out without saying, but obviously not all indigenous people are the same, not all native nations are the same, and there are different uh, nuances and, and things that people subscribe to some places but not elsewhere. So I had to be aware of that.
2: Yeah, I was just uh, speaking with a musician and a writer by the name of Le- Leanne Betasamosake Simpson, who uh, hails from Ontario, and we got into a discussion about uh, in her book. There's a, a reference to gender pronouns, they, them, gender pronouns, and and sorry, I read two of her books recently, and I'm blanking on which one features this commentary. But she basically discusses the fact that in in some aspects of Indigenous culture, like they, them, is what they've always used uh they very rarely use uh you know feminine and masculine pronouns and i just had never heard that before and it it kind of reminds me it reminded me at the time of the fact that there's just so much that i feel like we're we're all just catching up to indigenous culture in some ways that's like a pervasive feeling i have like if we just listened <laughs> we might be we might be able to catch up faster but every so often we in western culture decide something and if you do a little research in history, like you do, um, you will discover that indigenous people have been having these kinds of discussions or asking us to consider them for decades, if not centuries.
0: So There's there's an excellent book that you probably have talked about on your show before. It's a book from up north that I read in my research called Unsettling Canada oh, yeah. by Ar- Arthur Manuel. That book was uh, really important in my research and understanding... What now I consider basic concepts because he, Arthur Manuel, the, the, the writer of the book, describes it so efficiently and succinctly in an easy-to-understand way, concepts that I would have thought were complicated. I know in Canada they reference UNDRIP a lot, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm-hmm. That's in the news all the time. But how many Globe and Mail readers actually understand what that is and what that means and what's in there, the why and the how? And Art Manuel's book uh, schooled me on what the doctrine of discovery is and I can't believe that that isn't history 101 in any American history class or Canadian history class learning what the doctrine of discovery is because it's the basis for all of the wealth held by these respective countries. The doctrine of discovery was invoked uh, going back to the 15th century by international explorers who were exploring, quote-unquote exploring, under the flag of either Spain, France, England, Portugal, or the Dutch. And Doctrine of Discovery said that if you stumbled across a continent or a land that was uninhabited by Christians, even if it already had five million people there, if there were no Christians, if those five million were not uh, Christian, then the rights of the land would automatically revert to the host country of the explorer yes and and that is how spain <laughs> france england the dutch the portuguese ended up owning north america it was like this this ridiculous law that they had created a papal order the doctrine of discovery
2: and it's still and, as i think you point out in your book it's still invoked today Up until 2007,
0: it was still the primary way that Canada defended any land title dispute when it came to pipelines. And then um, Prime Minister Stephen Harper's lobbyists worked around the clock for four years at the United Nations. And this is chronicled in the art manual book. The only four countries on earth that refused to ratify UNDRIP because the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples declared the doctrine of discovery invalid, said this is no longer a valid law, it's a racist law, it's an insane law, and they compared it to the slave codes, um, the black codes, uh, during the the period of Reconstruction that disenfranchised African Americans with these bullshit laws. Mm -hmm. And so UNDRIP said this is no longer valid, and for that reason, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the United States refused to ratify. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, Stephen Harper's lobbyists worked for four years to have an amendment added, and they finally succeeded in having that amendment added. And that amendment stated Canada will ratify UNDRIP so long as they never have to honor it. Yeah. Meaning, you know, we will, it was in In name uh, only kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I didn't know about any of that until I started researching this book. It seems like. You would learn that the first day of school.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's lots of revelatory uh, aspects to your book, and it really does read as it's it's a history of indigenous comedy, of course, but it does feel like a history of North America and and entertainment, entertainment Mm -hmm. generally as it relates to indigenous culture. You mentioned Charlie Hill. Uh, Your book is named for the punchline of one of, if not his most famous joke, Uh, And I just I know there's lots of fascinating figures in this book. I want to home in a little bit on Charlie uh, because you have made him. He recurs among those who recur. He recurs uh, frequently in the book. Um, Can you tell the people who don't know about Charlie Hill a little bit more about him?
0: Sure. Charlie Hill, his most famous joke, I'll paraphrase it. He had his network television debut on The Richard Pryor Show. In 1977, uh, Richard Pryor had seen Charlie Hill perform at the Comedy Store on the Sunset Strip, which is Hollywood's most famous uh, comedy club, the Comedy Store. Been open since 72, and Charlie Hill moved from Wisconsin to California in late 74. And his opening joke was, uh, and he did this on the Richard Pryor show, his opening joke was, uh, my name is Charlie Hill, I'm Oneida, Uh, my people are from Wisconsin, we used to be from New York, but we had a little real estate problem. <laughs> and so that's the title of, of my book. We had a little uh, real estate problem. yeah. And Charlie Hill had always wanted to be in show business. He always was interested in comedy. He used to watch comedians on the Ed Sullivan Show and the Jackie Gleason Show. But he never really saw a path. You know, as a Native American in the 1950s and early 60s, you were only on TV if a white person was portraying you as a racist stereotype, Mm -hmm. there was really no progressive portrayal. There was no realistic portrayal. There was uh, very few indigenous actors on the screen. And if there were, they were uh, placed in the 1880s or, you know, in the past, as opposed to living in modern times. And so Charlie Hill really wanted to get into comedy. He just didn't see a path. He just didn't know he was living on the, uh, reservation. Um, so he really wasn't sure. He grew up in Detroit and his his father moved the family back to the reservation when Charlie was around eight years old because that's where he his, his father had grown up and he wanted to be back there. But he just didn't see the past. But eventually, um, a lot of comedians moved to Hollywood around that same time because Johnny Carson had moved The Tonight Show from New York City to Los Angeles in 1970. Uh, too, the same year that uh, the comedy store opened. yeah, And it quickly became the casting ground for any comedian to do TV, the comedy store. And so Johnny Carson would mention it on his show. You can see so-and-so performing this weekend at the comedy store on the Sunset Strip. And so a lot of comedians, Charlie Hill included, took that as a signal to move west because yeah. maybe that would be the path to get on The Tonight Show. And for Charlie Hill, it turned out to be exactly the case. He moved to Hollywood in 74. By 1978, he became the first Native American comedian to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. To this day, he's still the last uh, indigenous comedian to perform on The Tonight Show. Um, So all throughout the 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s, Charlie Hill was the Native American representative in comedy. Really the only one of any magnitude. He had done Johnny Carson, The Richard Pryor Show, Merv Griffin, The Mike Douglas Show, Arsenio Hall, he uh, wrote on uh, Roseanne. So he had all these credits, but there were very few other Indigenous people or even opportunities for Indigenous people in comedy at the time. But unbeknownst to Charlie Hill, that whole time that he was appearing on TV throughout the late 70s, all throughout the 1980s, into the early 1990s, there were young Indigenous children watching him being inspired by him. And the people that I spoke to for this book, whether they were doing improv comedy or sketch comedy or stand-up comedy or writing TV shows, pretty much all of them said, yeah, I was 10 years old, I saw Charlie Hill on TV, and that changed my life. Or I was attending university, taking some courses in such and such, Charlie Hill came to my school and performed, it changed my life. Instance after instance after instance, I talked to people who said they became a stand-up comedian, or they got involved in comedy because they saw Charlie Hill, and he sort of exemplified the possibilities. Here's an indigenous person on TV, not pretending to do anything else, not selling their themselves out to do a stereotype, but being proud of who they are, saying to the world, my name is Charlie Hill, I'm Oneida, and then telling jokes, being funny, being a stand-up comic, existing in the present acting like a human being instead of uh, uh, some white racist concept of what a Native American person is or what an indigenous person is. And so simply by appearing on TV in the mainstream, Charlie Hill was this revolutionary character who inspired dozens and dozens and dozens of young indigenous people to get involved in comedy. And so now, pre-pandemic, like I said, there was this mini comedy boom of all these new young indigenous performers and nearly all of them could trace their inspiration to Charlie Hill. So he's the central figure and character in this new book uh, for that reason. And I don't think it had ever been previously acknowledged except maybe privately in some indigenous communities, just how much of an influence Charlie Hill did have because he never became a mainstream household name Hmm. in any way, despite doing those big shows. He never became a huge star. And in later years, even while he was still alive, his star kind of faded. And so for that reason, he was never really considered a historical figure, I guess. They just did a comedy store uh, documentary on Showtime, a multi-episode documentary, and Charlie Hill is not uh, mentioned in it. And I find that a little bit strange because in this era, as we celebrate diversity, especially here in Hollywood, you know, if somebody is the first black performer to do anything, we'll celebrate it. The first Latino uh, uh, newscaster or actor or whatever will celebrate it. And yet somehow the fact that Charlie Hill was the first Native American comedian on network television in primetime in late night, it just kind of gets uh, forgotten or missed or overlooked. So I'm trying to frame that in its proper context and place Charlie Hill in comedy history in a position that he deserves because not only was he the first indigenous comedian to do these major shows, he inspired a whole new generation of indigenous performers and comedians. And I think that's really important.
2: Well, and I think that what you get to quite a bit is sort of the power of representation in media Across generations, uh, or 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 in popular entertainment, uh, whether you're talking about Will Rogers, or whether you're talking about uh, indigenous-oriented comedy specials that uh, are aired on CBC TV here in Canada, or even APTN, you know these these uh, which is the I forget what that acronym is off the top of my head. Do you remember
0: Aboriginal People's Television Network?
2: That's correct. So just seeing themselves on screen or on stage or in the theater. uh, How important would you say that is to budding comedians? I think the answer is obvious, but I do feel like that's a central tenet of your, of your book is that just the fact that people like Charlie Hill or the 1491s, they get up on stage and, and potentially reach the next generation of entertainers who see themselves See a future for themselves, not just see themselves, but see like, oh, wait a minute. I could maybe do that. Like how integral to your story, if you will, in this book, how integral is that to your story?
0: Well, you know, when I started writing this book, I did not have a central theme in mind. I found the theme as I researched the project. So I never went into it thinking Charlie Hill is this hugely influential figure or even this really important figure. It never dawned on me. I knew that he existed, that he had done The Tonight Show, and I wanted to research his career, but I had no knowledge of the cause and effect, the ripple effect, the domino effect, whatever effect that representation can have on people until I started interviewing people, and his name just kept coming up again and again and again, and that faced me with the most obvious theme which is that representation matters and that when you eliminate that representation, what bubbles up in its place is often something harmful, you know. When you don't have indigenous people behind the camera, but you're doing a project that's about indigenous peoples, there's a strong chance that what ends up on the screen is gonna be all fucked up, you know, it's gonna be yeah, if not racist, then just ill informed. And when you have native people in control of native stories, then there's this potentially positive effect that occurs yeah, yeah go ahead, go ahead. i was
2: just going to say there's also in your book like intergenerational tension when i think of williams and ree and how they're depicted in the book uh, i mean i'll let you talk about them a little bit first because uh, maybe just to contextualize them there is but i will say like in the book there's this incident where i think <laughs> you know it's a very unfortunate incident where you know they're doing kind of classic vaudeville comedy is that a fair way of classifying what they do it's sure, old-fashioned comedy, yeah. Um, yeah, and so they're not really up on just what the next generation is thinking and doing and they end up in a situation in Saskatchewan where they put on a show and they're highly insensitive to the mood of the room. And there's a few instances where you depict this sort of clash of wills and styles and re- people resenting one another. So it is a... It's a a bit fraught on some level, too. It's not all, not everyone is bound together by their their indigenous heritage, if you will. Uh, There's tension as well, right?
0: Well, of course not. I mean, that's, again, throughout history, indigenous peoples have been uh, stereotyped, right? And now, as we come to a position in our societies where we try and circumvent the stereotypes, sometimes new stereotypes are created, so a lot of non-natives want to think of indigenous peoples as all being the same, you know, and when you hear from one indigenous person that they're speaking on behalf of everybody, but of course that is impossible. And there are hundreds of different native nations and hundreds of different languages and hundreds of different belief systems and whatnot. So of course you're going to have some contradictions. And then just normally, as with anybody, there's always a generational divide between young people and yeah. old people, no matter what culture they belong to. Yeah. So that's true here too. And that's highlighted in the book. And that also is intentional. I want people to come away with an understanding that there's an, a diversity yeah. of opinions, yeah. even if that diversity of opinions is an opinion that you personally might hate. So, yeah. you know, I don't like Prime Minister Stephen Harper, but he still exemplifies a diversity of opinion among Canadians. So in America, everybody thinks that Canadians are so nice and so uh, socialistic, and I go, well, Stephen Harper is very much an American-style uh, politician and uh, much maligned in Canada. You know, People always say, oh, Canadians are so funny, and I'm like, man, I can introduce you to some really unfunny
2: Canadians. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, no, it's a div- diversity and all. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I appreciate that you – want to point those differences out whether they're generational uh comedy styles i mean the 1491s i think almost uh their origin as a, as a sketch troupe was really almost an opposition to the way uh indigenous people were depicted both by outsiders and within you know as this dour sad group of people that never laugh at anything i do think that's a, a central tenet of the book as well Is this feeling that you know, indigenous culture, indigenous figures are always presented as very self-serious and solemn, and that's something that a lot of indigenous comedians can play at, play against, I suppose, or you know, use as sort of a, a source of their material. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I mean, the most obvious. It should go without saying, but for some reason you have to say it is that uh, people are people. You know there's yeah. no such thing as a whole swath of people that don't smile and laugh. That doesn't exist. Yeah. Some people laugh more than others. Some people are funnier than others. Some people have a better sense of humor than others. But all of those elements exist in all of humanity, regardless of race, race, ethnicity, uh, culture. I mean, that should go without saying, but the success of stereotype propaganda in media, in movies, in television, in music lyrics throughout uh, the history of show business has been very insidious in brainwashing people into thinking things that aren't true are the case. And, Mm. you know, we're getting to a point, I hope, where we're beyond that. But then, of course, there are new stereotypes that are derived. So in the 90s, there was this sort of trend of Native American-themed movies because Dances with Wolves was so successful. And it created this new era of stereotype of the all knowing communicating with nature and the clouds and like real the peaceful passive uh, stereotype as opposed to the hostile villain stereotype
2: well it's interesting as you were speaking i i did have a thought i was thinking about charlie hill and his relationship to some of the most popular comedians of our time you mentioned richard pryor Uh, I believe at the time Robin Williams was still kicking around, Uh, the comedy star David Letterman was on the come up, and Letterman was someone who valued Charlie, I think. He made a point, there's a point in the book, I believe, where Charlie is looking for some help in his career and basically calls up David Letterman, and Letterman has him on The Late Show with David Letterman, which is a remarkable story in itself, a remarkable story of connection, I'm guessing you did reach out to David and his people about participating in the book. I didn't, I didn't connect with Letterman this time.
0: I'm not sure what happened. The guy that I talked through to get to Letterman last time I did this book writing process when I was writing The Comedians, My History of Stand-Up, the first book that I did, I, I think Letterman was still doing his show, his late night talk show. Mm-hmm. So the connection I had was you go through a person to get through that person and now that he is not doing that show, I think he has different people because I, that that email went uh, nowhere. So I didn't get a chance to talk to Letterman or Leno, but I did speak with a number of people from Charlie Hill's past, like Buffy St. Marie, mm-hmm. Lindsay Wagner, who played the bionic woman on television in, in the late seventies. They knew Charlie Hill early on. Buffy St. Marie in 1975, Charlie had barely been doing standup for six months and, Buffy St. Marie made him her opening act. He was opening for Buffy St. Marie, mostly playing indigenous gigs and brought Charlie a whole new audience. People had not seen a Native American stand-up comedian before. And so he had these two worlds. He would be doing open mics with Letterman in the San Fernando Valley or doing the Comedy Store with Robin Williams. And then he would go on the road with Buffy St. Marie doing gatherings, doing different uh, powwows and and festivals around the country. So he got a lot of of help early on, a boost from certain people. And then after he did uh, the Richard Pryor show, which was a a very successful stand-up appearance, it was a primetime NBC show. The show itself didn't last long. It was low-rated, 15 million people saw Charlie Hill's stand-up debut, and that was the lowest-rated show of the evening really? back, in that, wow. back in that era of three networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, hmm. 15 million. If, you, if your show was only getting 15 million viewers a week, they would cancel the show because you weren't doing the numbers that constituted a hit show. Today, that would be the number one show, 15 yeah. million viewers. Yeah. But back then, it was different. And so, anyways, 15 million people, still a lot of people, and so Charlie Hill got a lot of work Because of that appearance, one of the things that he got was a guest role on The Bionic Woman, which at the time (laughs) was one of the most popular TV shows uh, going. And Lindsay Wagner was the star of that show. They struck up a friendship, a relationship, some people say, and were together for uh, several months. I got to talk to Lindsay Mm -hmm. for this book. Her reminiscence was really interesting. Got to talk to Buffy St. Marie. Her reminiscence was really interesting. Um, Got to speak with Roseanne. Uh, off the record, she sent me some material. Uh, Cause Char- Char- to-
2: did Charlie write for the Roseanne show?
0: Yeah. Um, Charlie became a popular comedian right at the right time. So he did Carson in 78. In and writing that era is when comedy clubs started to really open up. And by the early 1980s, there were comedy clubs all over North America. There was hundreds and hundreds of comedy clubs in the 1980s, one of them which still exists was called the Comedy Works in mm-hmm. Denver, Colorado. And when Charlie Hill was booked to headline the Comedy Works in Denver in nineteen eighty two, the opening act was just a local open micer named Roseanne Barr. Yeah. So they they met each other in nineteen eighty two. And then in the early nineties, when Charlie was having trouble securing work, he wasn't making a lot of money a bunch of his old comedy store friends were writing on The Roseanne Show, and so they brought him in to help write a Thanksgiving-themed episode, (laughs) and that episode went well enough that they hired him full-time, and he was a staff writer on Roseanne in one of its final seasons.
2: Mm, There you go. Yeah, so the real loyalty there that I appreciate about the book, too. You know, comedians can be depicted as really cutthroat, competitive, but I like... You know, I as you know, I think Cliff, I loved your book, The Comedians, and I recommend. I bought that book for people as gift. You know, as a gift, I just you, I I send it around wherever I, whenever I think of it, and I think it's wonderful. But yeah, the camaraderie. uh, You know, we talked about some of the tension, I guess, but I think in this book, in the new book, but I do think the camaraderie uh, is really remarkable, and I appreciate how much. Charlie resonated with his fellow comedians as a comedian, whether or not he was a native American, indigenous, what have you, they just seemed to really enjoy hanging out with him, And he seemed like a, yeah. a, a nice guy.
0: Yeah. He was much beloved, much beloved, very yeah. supportive. Um, what I would call a generous laugher. You know, he, it didn't yeah. take much for him to, <laughs> to burst out laughing and comedians love being around people that are easy laughers, not easy laughers in the sense that they're insincere, but sincerely give it up when something's funny and let out a big belly laugh. Charlie Hill Hill always did that. And, um, you know, people who were regulars at the comedy store often talk about his laugh. It's very seldom that you hear people describing a comedian's laughter. Charlie Hill, his laugh would echo through the room and you always knew it was him laughing. It was very identifiable, so yeah. uh, he was a great guy to have around, and a really supportive guy, had no jealousies, had no hang-ups about his fellow comedians, he was just a lover of, of, of comedy, and a supportive guy, and much beloved, and for that reason, well remembered, still to this day, in glowing terms by his uh, his contemporaries, and you're right, like, often that's not common in comedy, there can be a lot of hostility and a lot of um, contempt you know comedians do not like to associate with people they don't consider funny well, yeah, you know so yeah. even <laughs> so if you if you if you show up on the stand up scene and you have not proven yourself yet on the stage comedians are not nice to you they yeah. they don't say hey nice to meet you good luck they ignore you yeah um, once you prove yourself on stage as a funny person then they'll want to know you. Charlie Hill didn't have those attitudes. He would treat everybody equally whether they were a big star or just uh, an audience member or whatever. He treated everybody equally. And so for that reason he was much beloved, but that is a very rare attitude within comedy.
2: Yeah, there's a love there's a few lovely anecdotes along those lines of younger generations of comedians encountering Charlie or finding themselves on a bill with Charlie in his old it is, you know, in his more advanced years, I guess, and him just being so encouraging as they got off stage. Well, and-
0: actually, I heard, a, I heard a story. I don't know. Maybe it's not in the book. He did eventually take on that role of the sort of elder statesman, the encouraging statesman. But in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, as his career was slowing down and the first wave of new indigenous comedians were starting to emerge, you know, maybe eight or nine or ten And they're almost all men, eight or nine or 10 dudes, native dudes who started doing comedy around that time. Charlie initially was resistant. He did not want to encourage them and he did not want to take the credit of having inspired him. One of his friends told me this Hmm. because he wasn't sure that they were funny and he did (laughs) not want to be the guy blamed for encouraging somebody who should not, in his opinion, be encouraged. (laughs) Yeah, You know, because. He still believed that you should have the goods, that you should should have the talent, that not anybody can just do comedy. Yeah, so he was a craftsman, was a bit,
2: real craftsman in that regard. Yeah, yeah.
0: So he was resilient to accepting that credit until a few years later when there were some people on the scene that he could be proud of, and then he sort of did grow into that role. But initially, he did not want to encourage anybody uh, who followed in his footsteps in the, in the early 2000s anyways because he... Apparently, did encounter a comedian or two that made him cringe, and he really did not want to be taking the credit uh, as their inspiration.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, but, yeah. yeah, that's a little quality control. That that's good. <laughs> I, yeah, can, I yeah. don't resent him for that. That's that's good. Actually, that's good. You, you know, earlier you were talking about how the book was received. I think mostly from uh, maybe some of the subjects of your book, other members of indigenous or Native American communities. What about other receptions? Does anything surprise you? I, I will tell you candidly, you know, I've tried to pitch your, you know, coverage of your book and I'm getting that resistance that we talked about earlier in the conversation. Well, this is a white guy writing about indigenous culture. What do we, I know we can't touch this. And I was like, really? That seems not good uh, because he's really making a point of giving people space and a platform to tell their stories and also to tell these really lost to history anecdotes that i found utterly fascinating are you encountering any challenges in getting people to embrace this book beyond the people you uh, alluded to earlier who have uh, sort of been uh, you know expressing gratitude to you about it uh I want to know who said that to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you. I can tell you. But I'm just curious. Have you encountered this uh, yourself in any? No. no. Okay, good. No,
0: I have not. Good. I have not. Um, I guess if, if it's happening, then it's it's behind closed doors. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I thought it would gain more traction in Canada than it has because indigenous issues are at the front and center in uh, the media in Canada, and they're not at the front and center here in the United States. And so I thought that maybe it would be a breakout book in Canada more than the United States, and it has been exactly the opposite. It's been uh, more embraced in America than Canada. It might be because it has the term Native Americans on the cover instead of First Nations or Indigenous. People might think that it doesn't have a First Nations angle, which it does very much. There's yeah. a lot of yeah. American and Canadian, and and you know I don't really acknowledge the difference between the border when it comes to the history of Indigenous peoples. So, no, I haven't necessarily encountered that resistance. If it's there, I, I'm just not being told of it or aware <laughs> okay. of it.
2: Sorry to uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Don't shoot the messenger no, here.
0: I, 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 I fascinated I, by by that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. I will
2: say that to uh, those I've pitched it to. I pitched it when it when I first heard about it, and then I hadn't read your author's note. You know, the question did come to my mind as well. Like, what is this? But I but I also knew your other work. I know your. I knew you from your Vice series. I knew obviously. I knew your your previous book, The Comedians. I knew you would take a nuanced and sensitive and thorough, thoroughly researched approach to this book. So I think I'm going to repitch it. Now that I've, like I say, I'm in the midst of reading it for a second time, just because I enjoyed it so much. So I think uh, now that I have a better handle on it, and I have the author's note, that that'll help. I just want people listening to know that I, I think you've given this book and and the work you had to do here, and the somewhat awkward position you were put in, I suppose. Uh, mm-hmm. You gave it all full consideration, and I think that comes through in the book. If like when I look at it, chunks and chunks of other people's voices, you know, paragraphs. Of just people talking. You editorialize yeah. where you where you must and you add context, but it's really just other other people's voices that you have taken, I think, yeah. great great care in presenting.
0: Yeah, the contemporary stories are basically oral history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's people talking and I'm not in those chapters at all. And then with some of the older historical stuff, Will Rogers, then my voice is in there a little bit more. But even somebody like Charlie Hill who passed away in two thousand and thirteen. His story is being told by people like Buffy St. Marie or his older brother Norbert or his daughter Nazba or people that knew him yeah. more than than I. I mean, I did the research, but these people are telling the story. So that was really an important consideration. It is a little bit of an, a difficult book to market for a number of reasons, not just the fact that I'm a white guy who has written this book, but just the concept, You know, it's so unknown especially to people in the United States who are like, oh, Native Americans and comedy. They're trying to grasp what that means because there's no famous figure, you know, like a Richard Pryor or a George Carlin. So they're trying to think like, well, what does that mean? And I think, I'm guessing that a lot of people think of a stereotype like, oh, it's about humor and culture and what does the eagle teach us? You know, like some sort of... (laughs) Yeah, Some sort of ridiculous dances with wolves type stereotype must be conjuring in people's non-native minds, I think, when they hear about it. It is a book about comedy. It's a book about show business. It's very much in tune with my previous book, The Comedians, which was a history of stand-up. If you like that book, you'll like this book. And if you didn't like that book, You'll still like this book, is what I keep saying. I think, Um, uh,
2: you know, you alluded to the fact that that Comedy Store documentary doesn't feature Charlie Hill, despite what a landmark figure he was for indigenous comedy. But -hmm. they made a point of talking about, I think you said this, and I can't, I didn't watch that whole series. I watched a couple episodes. But you made a point of of them seemingly celebrating, you know, when uh, black comedians rose there or Latino American comedians rose there. I think there is something going on, you know. Here in Canada, we had uh, an analysis of our treatment of Indigenous people, and it was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, yeah. that's that sounds very serious, and it is. And I think we take it so, uh, you know, to your point here in Canada, I think it is taken very seriously, but with sensitivity and and whatnot. And I, but I do, I don't know that people are maybe in Canada ready to embrace, you know, a comedic. <laughs> Uh, angle on the indigenous experience in this country or in America, if that makes does that make any sense? Like, there's just something. Well,
0: I mean, the thing is, like, I the people that who said that to you, I don't know who they are. How many of them were uh, First Nations peoples? None. And how many? None. Exactly. Okay, so there you go. Yeah. So I'm getting great endorsements from First Nations uh, uh, Canadians and journalists, and I'm not saying this to defend myself. I'm saying this out of gratitude. I'm very grateful to have people like the Ryan McMahons or the Dakota Ray Heberts and the other people that I know up there endorsing this book and getting behind it and feeling that it's necessary and that it's going to fill a gap, uh, hopefully. So I get that. I also read a book in uh, in the research called – I'm going to paraphrase the title because I don't remember the title off the top of my head. But it was something along the lines of indigenous rules of style. And it's a it's a book, I think the, the scholars are from Alberta, maybe. Huh. Um, but a couple of indigenous professors put together this booklet, which is a guideline for non indigenous people like myself who are writing about indigenous topics. Yeah. What to, what to, and it really is a book of suggestions, you know, it's like what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but it also has a lot of nuance in it. Like early in the conversation when I was telling you about this debate I had. Not a debate, but a conversation about the phrase 2 spirit." This book, uh, Indigenous Rules of Style. Again, I'm not sure if that's the exact title. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it it gets into that: what you should consider, what you shouldn't consider, who you should talk to, who you should consult with before you make a decision, all these d- different types of things. And like I've noticed in this conversation, we use the term Indigenous. In America, uh, native people still use the word "native." I guess that's not in uh, common parlance in Canada anymore. No. When I lived in when I lived in Canada, it was. So it's like all those sort of things that you have to be sensitive to, that you have to be aware of. What are you, what message are you putting out there? What are you considering, not considering? All these different types of things. It is a bit of a landmine.
2: Well, it's, there's a lot of white, there's when, a lot of white guilt in it too, though. I mean, Tom Thomas think, Thomas think, King's book, An Inconvenient Indian has a whole uh, chapter about this. Just like, yeah, white people want to call us all these different things. We call ourselves what we call ourselves. Leave us alone. <laughs> you know, yeah. ostensibly. Like you can you can dance around all the different terms you want and change them whenever you want. Whatever. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't yeah. bother us. Whatever. You know what I mean? Like yeah, so nobody cares. Nobody really cares, but white people care a lot. They want to make sure they're saying the right thing at the right time and that's just the way it goes. So that's part yeah. of, that's probably part of it too.
0: I think you would be hard pressed to find anybody who would read this book and then walk away with the same apprehension that they have about it before reading it. Absolutely.
2: A hundred percent. And that's that's why I've I've decided to not only step on this landmine, but just you know, hug it. I'm I'm all in. I'm all in on this book. I think it's wonderful, Cliff. I think you've done a a fantastic job and I'm happy to hear the subjects of the book and other members of First Nations, Native American, indigenous communities, they've all you know to your to your knowledge anyway, they've embraced it. That's important because I think you're giving voice to something that has been voiceless for many, many years, and it blew my mind like I'm someone who studies comedy and I didn't know this. So well, from-
0: not only not, not only is it important, it, to me, it's the only thing that matters in yeah. terms of response to the book. I don't really care if it's a big hit or a small hit or a bestseller or, or whatever. I just wanted to please the indigenous uh, comedians that are featured in the book. I wanted to please people who love and remember Charlie Hill. And I wanted to please the indigenous readership, first yeah. and foremost. I'm glad that anybody else appreciates it. But that was my main concern. My previous book, The Comedians, which was a history of stand-up, I just wanted to please people that were comedians. Yeah, Really, yeah. like not not just, but that was like my main hope you know if I could get the endorsement of the largest larger comedy community for that first book then I'd be happy and if I could get the endorsement of the larger indigenous community this book I'd be happy and in both instances that's what I had so anything else beyond that is fine but though that those audiences are really who I hope when when they compliment it that that's when it has the most meaning for me
2: well I appreciate that Cliff uh before we go uh, I do wonder, I, I don't know what you can divulge at this point, but you say you've been working as much as you usually would be uh, during this pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you thought of a next move, per se, anything you're working on that you can divulge any details about at the moment?
0: Yeah, I could. Uh, I, I am a very, very lucky person. You know, I my first book was published by Grove Atlantic. This new book is published by Simon & Schuster. Somehow I've tricked people into uh, uh, (laughs) accepting me into legitimate society. You know, the fact that I'm a published author is absolutely incredible because I really am a bum, and anybody who knows me uh, will will verify that. (laughs) I am really a a slovenly, lazy bum, and uh, that is why I do what I do, though, because I – I quote unquote studied show business. But what does that mean? It means you just watch TV all the time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. I used to say that to my mother when she's like, What do you, I used to tape Letterman uh, and then watch it when I got home from school. And my mother once was like, Why do you, what are you doing right now? And I just muttered homework and she didn't like that. She didn't like that little muttering at all. But no, I'm, a lot of us are like you, Cliff. You're just, you're the most successful version of us. There is, on some level. Published, you know. Are you still, by the way, are you doing comedy? I know it's impossible for anyone to really do comedy the way they used to, but are you still a practicing comedian, so to speak?
0: No, I've been retired from stand-up for for many, many years. Never did it in, in America, really. Only ever did it in Canada. Oh, okay. I had... I th- still have all my press uh, framed from like 2001, 2002, 2003. I have posters and the cover of the Georgia Strait that I was on and oh, all this nice. stuff from my standup career is framed on my walls here in uh, Hollywood. So I'm very proud of that yeah. phase of my career. Cause I was like 21, 22 making uh, some waves, but I uh, know uh, that's a whole different. It's all gone.
2: Okay. Yeah. 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 Y- y-
0: yeah. I mean, I mean the, the weird thing is like I was doing stand up when it wasn't that popular. It was like, the 80s and early 90s comedy boom was long gone. And then YouTube, iPhones, Netflix, podcasts didn't exist yet. Yeah. So my stand career was in the middle of those popular bookends. I was doing comedy during its most unpopular <laughs> period and became popular while I was doing it. But maybe maybe I quit at the exact wrong time because <laughs> as soon as I quit, then suddenly everybody sort of looked like me. Everybody was, was who I saw doing stand-up was, had like a hipstery, post-Dimitri Martin, Zach Galifianakis look to them <laughs> and it became like the biggest thing ever comedy just blew up and I was like, holy Christ like, <laughs> had, had, I, had I kept doing it I would have had like a good 15 years more experience than everybody else I probably would have who knows what I would have been but anyways right.
2: sorry, yeah, yeah no, I didn't, I didn't mean, to, I didn't mean yeah. to go down a bad part of memory lane for you there. I, uh... No, not at all,
0: no. It's a good part of memory lane. It's just <laughs> interesting to think like what my career would have or would not have been had I kept doing stand-up and not been doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. But it's all connected. It's all related. All the things that I get to do as an author, you know, I get to do some big shows, and they're the types of shows that I would have had ambitions to do as a stand-up. Yeah. But I get to do them not as a stand-up, just as a uh, – as a book writer, whether it's Mark Marin's show or Just for Laughs in Montreal, I get to do all those things, and so all my ambitions that I had as a stand-up were kind of realized, except not as a stand-up. If that makes yeah, any sense? Yeah, no, it
2: does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're working on something now?
0: Yes, yes. I'm writing a new book about uh, the history of racism and anti-racism throughout the history of show business. So oh. the new the new book will be a combination of my first book, The Comedians, which was a history of stand-up. And the new book, we had a little real estate problem, the story of uh, Native Americans and comedy. It takes the themes of both of those books and combines them into one, and expands it even further beyond just stand-up, but television, film, music, radio, you know, the the whole shebang. It starts with the history of blackface around 1830, post-Civil War, the emergence of racial stereotypes in vaudeville, and then just around the turn of the century, the emergence of the first protest movements against racist depictions on the stage or ethnocentric depictions in film and so on and so forth coming right up into the present day.
2: Right. Wow. Well, that's, I mean, I was going to say what maybe prompted that, but given the way you've contextualized your other two books, and this and those maybe those uh, those processes, I guess, it, it kind of makes complete sense that they might feed into this sort of broader view of when the, when
0: when the third book comes out, which I guess will be a couple of years, it'll, it'll fit in like a trilogy. The, yeah. the Three books together will be a trilogy. And if you read them together, you'll come away with a real fully formed view of show business and of minority uh, activism as well.
2: Sounds really fascinating. You mentioned a trilogy. Does that suggest we might also somehow get prequels? Because that's a big thing now. You can't just have the trilogy. You have to go back to before. Is that something in the offing?
0: Well, I would love to do a prequel. You know what I would like the prequel to be is um, before I wrote The Comedians, I had been interviewing elderly comedians who were in their 80s and 90s before they died. I would get their stories down. So people like jack carter and Irwin Corey and shecky green all the people that were nightclub comedians yeah. in the 1940s and 50s i i interviewed at length and some of them like will jordan and, and jack carter i did multiple sessions with over the course of months and even years and, and interviewed them for literally hundreds of hours about their encounters with jack benny or al jolson all these figures from the past you know and Judd Apatow had a bestseller called Sick in the Head. Yeah, I have it. Just,
2: it's right at my feet yeah. here. I have it, weirdly. I pulled it out the other day, and it's it's just on the floor here b- right beside me. So that's weird that you mentioned that. It's the only well, book in my, besides yours, <laughs> it is the only book currently in my peripheral vision. That's weird.
0: Well, that book, as you know, is just a, a collection of transcripts of interviews that he did with yeah. uh, notable comedians. So the reason I ended up getting my book deal for Uh, The Comedians, uh, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy was based on that stuff I had been doing, interviewing these elderly comedians. And then I turned it into a narrative, and a lot of the quotes that are in that first book are from that uh, ongoing years of interviews that I had done with these elderly comedians, most of whom have since passed on. Hmm. So the prequel that I would like to do (laughs) is like Sick in the Head Presents and then just the transcripts <laughs> of those interviews with these elderly comedians that served as the basis for my first book.
2: Now, that's does, what I would like to Does do. Judd know about this prequel idea that I just... I thought I just made this up and we would go nowhere with it as a, as a dumb little joke, but it sounds like you really thought this through. Is Judd aware of this idea?
0: Well, I never thought of it as a prequel before, but I think it fits the uh, description
2: here. Yeah, okay. All right, well, that's fascinating in itself. That's cool. Okay, no, well, I
0: haven't... I haven't mentioned it to Judd. I got to mention it to his publisher more than to him, really, because <laughs> they're the ones who would have to sign off on exploiting the name. Right. Especially if it, w- and it would be weird if it wasn't done with the same publisher to mention that. Right. But uh, right. but Judd Apatow is uh, alphabetically the very first blurb on the back of the new book. We had a little real estate problem. The unheralded story of Native Americans and comedy, available from Simon and Schuster now in hardcover. Also audiobook from audible and a kindle uh book for those of you who like to stare at a screen
2: yeah and you've got bob odenkirk uh, has blurbed it steve martin philip j deloria Stephen graham jones and david truer yeah it's it's a beautiful book and i thank you for plugging it appropriately if people want to learn more about you cliff or follow you and your exploits on on the social media where would you like to send them
0: Oh, unfollow me, please. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 want to, I want to discourage people from using social media okay. at all. Okay. So anything I can do to get people off of their phone, I would suggest if you want to follow me, the best way to do is to go to your local public library and type in my last name into the search engine, Nesteroff, N-E-S-T-E-R-O-F-F, check out. We had a little real estate problem. (laughs) Or check out the comedians. Follow me that way through the books.
2: Fair enough, Cliff. No one's ever done this on the show in the last few years. They just say go and go to Instagram, go to Facebook, go to Twitter. Well, I appreciate that. And I yeah,
0: delete, delete, delete (laughs) all three of those apps (laughs) from your phone.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, yeah, the book is wonderful. Again, it is called "We Had a Little Real Estate Problem: The Unheralded Story." of Native Americans in Comedy. Cliff Nesterov, it's uh, really always a pleasure to get to speak with you and I appreciate you and your work. I hope you keep going and and best of luck in the future. Thank you, Vish. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Cliff Nesterov, who returned to the show, uh, this time for the 618th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, I guess. You can also follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative or follow me directly at uh, Vishkana on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm on both. Maybe much to Cliff Nesteroff's chagrin there. But still, that's where I am if you want to follow the show and me. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation. Uh, $6 or more grants you access to exclusive content that I uh, create. Well, I, I shouldn't say I create. I excavate. I find old archive interviews that I've done from my past well, in your past. My past is your past as well when you really get down to it. Anyway, I've done a lot of interviews with people uh, before I did started doing this show, and so anyone who donates $6 or more on the Patreon there gets access to those archives. And uh, as we're speaking, speaking of comedy, Neil Hamburger. I just uh, excavated or unearthed uh, Neil Hamburger, the first time I ever spoke with Neil Hamburger in 2006. So, again, if you're interested in con- exclusive content or if you just want to support the show, Please do so at patreon.com/slash creative control. And note, I have some creative control t-shirts still in stock, so if you'd like one, message me on patreon, we'll figure something out. Okay? Thanks again to uh, liveatmassyhall.com, where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by some amazing artists from all over the world. Also, want to thank Pizza Trocadero, the bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on this show. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you for listening to this episode with Cliff Nestoroff. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will read his book. We had a little real estate problem. It's wonderful. And I hope you will consider subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends about it. Maybe they'll subscribe to it. Maybe you'll have a little like podcast club where you talk about each episode. like in your living room with some coffee and some biscuits that would be nice please consider doing those things all of those things and whatever it is you do to engage with the show means a lot I will talk to you very soon bye for now